This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 134 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Syra Arif. She's a senior advisory solutions architect in the security and risk practice at ServiceNow, a global cloud computing company. She shares her insights on providing customers with solutions to the business challenges of governance, risk, and compliance. We'll get her perspective on threat intelligence, and she shares her experience coming up through the industry as a woman and why it's critical for organizations to embrace diversity. Stay with us. It was honestly luck, Dave. So I had a background in electrical and computer engineering. And at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was recruited by Cisco to actually work in their mobile internet technology group, which was a subdivision of Cisco that really focuses on cellular and satellite communications. And that's where I kind of started my career. I did that for about five years. And I realized it just wasn't the right fit for me. And that's when I got contacted by a small company called RSA, which was the security division (laughs) of EMC at the time. And I remember I called my dad and I said, Hey dad, have you heard of this company RSA? And he was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, you got to take this seriously. So that's when I returned the phone call to the recruiter from RSA. That kind of started my journey in cybersecurity. So I started by focusing really in the areas of vulnerability management, as well as governance, risk, and compliance. And so at the time, we were focused on bringing technical solutions to customers in both of those areas. And as I got deeper into it, I really started to get into the identity and access management space. And so there were a lot of challenges at the time around you know, having too many solutions, not being able to control access and understand who has access to what. And so RSA was really focused in that space. And then I started to go to client sites and I noticed a lot of clients were asking about, you know, potential integrations or partnerships between ServiceNow and RSA. And so I said to myself, what's this company called ServiceNow. Hmm. And that's kind of what sparked my interest. And luckily at the time ServiceNow, this was about four years ago, ServiceNow was actually in the process of building an entire subdivision focused on security and risk. And so they just happened to be looking for someone in the Boston area. And I reached out and that's how I was recruited onto the team. And it, it was it was crazy because four years ago, The company was maybe only 2,500 employees, which was when I joined. Now we've just about crossed over the 10,000 employee mark within a span of just three and a half or four years. Wow. So that's kind of what brought me to the point I'm at now. And so what is your day-to-day like? Yeah, so it's really really evolved. And, And what's great, Dave, is we've focused so heavily on the security and the GRC space or governance, risk, and compliance. And so what I do in my current role is I really consult across multiple verticals. So everywhere from financial services institutions, you know, based out in New York City and the New England area, 
all the way to healthcare and education, state and local governments to really focus on how we can help solve some of their technology and business challenges with ServiceNow solutions. And so a lot of that is coming in and consulting clients on how they run a vulnerability management program. So there's a lot of inefficiencies within the vulnerability management process, as well as, you know, how I can use incident response automation capabilities and really respond to security incidents quickly. And so my day-to-day is meeting with clients, identifying areas where they could, you know, heavily use some automation capabilities um, and then coming in and, and really showing them how ServiceNow Solutions can help meet some of their their problems. And really what we're trying to do, Dave, in this in this market is we're really trying to reduce the time that it takes to respond to anything, an incident, a vulnerability, a risk event, reduce that time so that we can, you know, make sure that we quickly respond to things that matter and that are critical without having them really turn into a major data breach or a huge financial loss to our organization. Can you give us some insights on where organizations are at that point when they're reaching out to someone like you and they, I suspect, you know, they know that looking into vulnerability management and incident response is is something they're, they're ready to do. They're ready for that next step. Is there is that an educational process for you to kind of get them up to speed on on how to calibrate their expectations? Yeah, 100%. So I think about it almost like, you know, when when we in our personal lives go and we have a doctor's appointment, right? So so we usually so some of us may may set up an appointment with our doctor and say, "Hey, you know, these are the symptoms that I have." can you help identify what my what my issue is some of us might even say i'm just going to go in for my regular checkup and just make sure that i'm still okay i'm still healthy or or are there mm-hmm. things that i need to be concerned about and so when organizations are coming to me it's typically you know it, it kind of falls into one of those two buckets um a lot of times and, and lately what i'm seeing is a lot of clients coming to me and they're and they're starting to say you know we, we've had something catastrophic happen. We've had a major data breach or we've had an external audit entity come in, especially in financial services. And they've, they've found out that, you know, there's, there's a major audit finding that they need to, they need to really go out and fix. And so when they come to us with this problem, they're telling us what some of their symptoms are or what some of those audit issues are. And that's when we can sit down and say, well, you know, here's what we think you, you need to do. You really need to, to think about things in a way where you're starting to quantify risk and, you know, without having that risk conversation and identifying what's critical to, you know, your business stakeholders all the way up to the board level, how are you going to make any sort of change down on the operational level? And so, um, you know, those are some of the conversations that we're having. When it comes to compliance, how do you help your customers um, make sure that they're not just checking off boxes, that uh, that compliance is also leading them to, to positive practices, to positive change, that sort of thing? Oh, gosh. Compliance is just, it's just a huge pain in the butt for so many organizations. And even the ones that are really mature in the space are still really struggling with it. So, so there's a, there's a couple things that, that organizations I think need to consider. Um, 
What one of those things, Dave, and and you'd be surprised. I still get surprised when I go to organizations. Is you know, there's a regulation out there. There's maybe some sort of regulatory document. Like let's take let's take into consideration some of the data privacy regulations, like GDPR. Hmm. Right. An organization may go online, type in GDPR into Google. They get the actual document that outlines the mandates. And and they sit down and they say, well, gosh, what does this mean? Does this apply to my organization? How do I translate this into something that's actually meaningful that I can take action on? And that's the first step in this whole process. This comes even before we start, you know, looking at a service now or a compliance tool to help us run some of the automation and manage that process. But it's that translation of what is the regulation telling me and what does that mean in my organization? That's kind of the first step. And that's honestly where I see organizations are struggling most. Hmm. So usually that involves a lot of attorneys and um, technology folks, you know, having to translate some of those requirements into something that matters. And then, and then we really get into the meat of things, which is, okay, now that you've understood what's required of you, do you actually have the appropriate business process in place? I think a lot of times when we think about compliance or some of these technology challenges, we think it's it's just something that I can put a technical solution in place and that'll fix my problem. Well, no, that's not the case. Without the appropriate business process and the right people involved in your organization, you're never going to have that program around compliance or reducing risk that you need. And so once you figure out the key players and making sure that everyone is committed to managing this business process, that's when you turn around and say, okay, well, now that we know what we need to do, I don't want to do this over email and spreadsheets because it's just too much work. Things get lost. I can't send an email to an individual, expect them to reply you know, within one business day if it's not at the top of their priority list. And so that's when they come to us at ServiceNow and they say, okay, let me actually have a, a technology platform in place that can help me manage this entire process from beginning to end. But, you know, it, it's a lot more than just the technology. And that's, that's really what I'm personally trying to preach to some of my customers. Is there a natural impulse to try to delay the reckoning when it comes to these sorts of things? I mean, I can imagine it being kind of a pay me now or pay me later sort of thing. In other words, you can get ahead of your your compliance requirements or at some point your require, your compliance or requirements are going to come for you. Oh, 100%. So it's interesting that you say this. So I know a lot of us were tracking the Cambridge Analytica scandal and, and the Facebook involvement and some of the data privacy stuff that was happening. And I think that was actually over a year and a half ago. So a lot of us were tracking that and I was watching the Zuckerberg trial and I was thinking to myself, well, wow, you know, some of the things that are going to come out of this are really going to have widespread implications. And so I mentioned GDPR, and there's another one around the CCPA, the California Privacy Initiative. And I think it's going to it's going to start trickling into other states as well. I know in Massachusetts, we have something um, that's kind of similar. And so looking at all of these data privacy regulations, you know, there was a key metric that was outlined or an impact rather on organizations that didn't meet GDPR initiatives. And I think the timeline was maybe last May. Um, you'd be surprised. I was in a CISO roundtable event maybe a couple months before the GDPR timeline cut off. 
And at this CISO roundtable, what I was what I was amazed to see was that about 75% of the CISOs there weren't actually ready for GDPR. They hadn't even started the process. So hmm. they knew the timeline was approaching, but they hadn't done anything about it. And, you know, some of the reasons that I see for that are, well, they didn't get any directive from the board or from a higher level. So that's one thing. So think about, you know, having to self-initiate a project that's as widespread as something as data privacy is. That's that's a huge project to take on, right? That's a lot of resources from from a CISO perspective. I mean, th- that was kind of one of the reasons. The other reason was they weren't quite sure if the actual impact or the fines were something that, you know, someone would actually have to pay. So yes, with GDPR, we have we have a, a potential fine we have to pay, but who's actually going to come and audit us and make sure we pay the fine? And then even if an organization, I know, you know, there's been some stuff with Facebook and Amazon and Google that's happened, but even with an organization that does get fined, are they actually going to pay the fine? And so they're kind of sitting around and waiting to see what happens or if this is even real before they actually go out and make change. And so so they drag their heels. And so even now, I mean, we're talking about a year and a half later, even now I'm seeing organizations still coming to us at ServiceNow and saying, hey, what can we do to get started to meet GDPR compliance? And we're, you know, we're way past that deadline. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, I, I mean, to get back to one of the things you mentioned early on in our conversation, there it's almost as if they're calculating that risk. They're taking a calculated risk that you know maybe maybe the other organizations will will get hit with fines first, or you know let's take a wait and see before we uh, before we spend all this money on something that may not come to pass. It is everything. Everything is a risk management exercise, and so I was actually talking to someone this morning about the fact that, you know, even with audit findings, for example, you may get hit with MRA, a matter requiring attention if you're a large financial services institution. Um, And that MRA may have a a fine of like, let's say a million or $5 million. But if it costs you $10 million to put a, a proper compliance program in place, you may actually say, you know what, I'll just pay for that audit finding because it's just easier and it costs me less than actually trying to meet compliance. And so it's all just a big exercise around risk management. I, I want to get your insights on uh, threat intelligence and, and how you consider that as part of an organization's defenses. Yeah, that's a great question. So so Dave, it was great meeting you at the Recorded Future Conference. Um, and I have threat intelligence at the top of my mind. So I meet with organizations um, that have a security operations center in place. So it could either be a SOC that's in-house or they've potentially outsourced to a MSSP or a service provider, um, but they're still having to deal with the remediation side of the house. And so with these organizations that are running an IR program, Um, A lot of them are under-resourced and they have way too many security incidents and attacks that are occurring. And so they're trying to figure out how do I do more with less and how do I take the analysts that I have in my SOC and make them more productive on things that actually matter 
and then automate things that maybe don't matter as much. And one of those key areas is this area of threat intelligence. So the concept of threat intelligence, if you're not aware, is is just this idea that there's a lot of a bad stuff that's happening out there on the internet. So there's a lot of hacker groups, a lot of attacks, there's a lot of um, exploits that are being written to go out and exploit known vulnerabilities. And so there's a research component to understanding what's happening out there in the wild. And what threat intelligence providers do is they actually provide organizations with a feed that allows them to track these campaigns, understand the exploits, and then identify you know, what's happening in the wild and how that affects my organization. And so these threat intelligence providers, they'll they'll provide a feed and there's this automation activity that needs to happen where we look at what's happening out there in the wild and then is it actually affecting us as an organization? Because if I'm being inundated with 500 security incidents in a day, I need to know what's actually critical and what I need to pay attention to. And so threat intelligence is really key because it allows organizations to identify what's actually real, what's actually going to impact the organization. And then that in turn will help the security analyst prioritize what needs to be top of mind from a remediation perspective. And so at ServiceNow, just from a technical perspective, we've got our IR solution and we can go out and actually integrate to these threat intel feeds and and different solutions out there. One of those being recorded future, you know, virus totals another. And we can actually help organizations quickly respond to these security incidents by performing things like IOC lookups. So if I see an observable in my security incident, is it something that's actually critical? And is it known by one of these threat intelligence providers? If it's known, then the threat intel provider can actually tell me, well, yes, this is a known IP or observable, and it's attributed to you know this hacker group or this campaign. Here's what you can do to actually go out and make sure that you're not affected by it. Maybe that has to do with patching a vulnerability, or maybe it has to do with going out and making a firewall change so that you're not as you know exposed to that that group that can actually come out and do harm to your organization. You know, you touched on something earlier in our conversation that, that I want to swing back around to, and that's the human factor. And I think for many people, it's easy to be um, sort of seduced by the allure of automation. And there's no doubt that automation can save time and allows us to do things that we couldn't otherwise do. But at the same time, you sort of have to dial it in with uh, those real live human beings. And I'm wondering, how do you guide your clients to to dial in that balance? Such an interesting comment that you're making. And, you know, we've got all these sophisticated security tools and processes out there. And being in the security industry, we're so deeply entrenched in automation and orchestration capabilities. And, you know, yet we we always find, especially me, when I go into clients, I always find that the number one type of threat that organizations are facing is a phishing incident. And think about what a phishing incident is. It's just an email that's going through, you know, your your proof point or your spam folder. It's ending up in someone's uh, email inbox. And then, you know, a user either opens up a file that's attached in that email or they click on a link and all of a sudden your system is compromised and that infection spreads 
in the organization. And so in that, you know, even though you may have the proof points, the service nows, the firewalls, you have everything you need in place, the weakest element is the human. It's the individual that opens up that email. And that's still the number one thing that I'm hearing with clients that they're struggling with. So the human factor is definitely a huge piece of this. I I think there needs to be a lot more security awareness out there. I think as an industry entrenched in cybersecurity, we're doing a great job you know, creating podcasts and and material and educational material out there. We're, we're getting into the hands of the folks that are in the line of business and educating them on cybersecurity as well. But still, if you turn around and talk to your neighbor who doesn't work in the cyberspace and tell them about some of the things that you're seeing, they'll be shocked. They have no idea. They have no idea. You know, humans have no idea that they need to put a post-it note on their webcam Um, on their laptop because someone Mm. might be watching them. And so we're still very far behind in terms of just educating the general public on some of the cybersecurity awareness that they need to have. I've actually been thinking personally about, you know, going and volunteering some time to work with my local city, especially with the elderly, to let them know when to look out for a phishing email or a phone call. Because, you know, it, it breaks my heart to think about that grandma that gets a phone call saying that, you know, her nephew is in prison and she needs to transfer money to some offshore bank account. We, we still have a long way to go. You know, looking at your career, um, you came up, you got your, your bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering, you have a, uh, a master's degree in technology and strategy. I would imagine that coming up through the ranks there, uh, there weren't a whole lot of women in a lot of your classes. What has that side of the experience been like for you? Oh, it's so interesting. I've done so much reflection on this topic throughout the years, just seeing how I've really evolved throughout my career. So yeah, I mean, in electrical engineering, sadly, there were only about three or four women in my class out of maybe 150. And that that metric has really carried on through the years. So, you know, my first job at Cisco, you know, very few females, especially as part of the engineering team moving on. Uh, you know, luckily in sales, we are starting to see a lot more women emerge and get into the cybersecurity space. There's a lot more awareness but there's still, there's a, there's a long way to go. So, you know, I, the one thing that I've realized is, you know, and and not to generalize, but for me personally, I think there's a misconception that in order to be a woman in technology, that you have to be this super hands-on coder who reverse engineers bugs and malware and that sort of thing. But what, what people don't realize out there is you can be in the technology industry and do all sorts of things, even if you have a technical background or not. For me personally, I'm really encouraging young women who are in you know undergrad or in grad school to really look at careers in cybersecurity. We could really benefit from the perspective that you have coming into this. You know, d- just the diversity of thought I think in cybersecurity is really essential. I was I was actually attending a fireside chat with um, a senior executive from from one of my customers, and and he was mentioning how he's going out and as part of his threat intelligence team, he's looking for diversity in thought and background could be gender related. It could be, you know, where you come from. It could also be your skill set because to fight 
cybercrime, we need all sorts of people who think in different ways because we need to reflect our attackers. Just like the cyber criminals are diverse in their talents and in their background, we need to recruit more diversity in cybersecurity so we can really think the way that the hacker thinks and solve some of the cyber problems that we're having. Our thanks to Syra Arif from ServiceNow for joining us. We sat down at Recorded Future's 2019 Our Fun Predict Conference in Washington, D.C. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.